Okay, I have three children. My firstborn was born with a broken leg and spent the first couple weeks of his life in a little mini body cast. And when that cast came off, he started moving and was in constant motion all the time. Second child came along. He was very different. He had a much more calmer uh, personality. So their personalities were very different. And yet both of them, for the most part, two little boys, were were very sweet. They had very sweet dispositions. When I would talk to them about things of God, for the most part, um, they were concerned. Uh, They were interested. They they appeared to be very tender-hearted to the things of God. Then... Uh, my one, my one son, he, he could hardly talk, but when I would read him Bible stories, he would say, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And then my daughter came along. She came along about five years after. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, I've been parenting now for about seven years. I'm starting to get the hang of things and I'm growing in my faith. I'm my, my, my uh, Christian walk was, was becoming more mature. And so I'm thinking, surely she will reap the benefits of that. And surely if her brothers were so sweet and tender-hearted, how much more a little girl? And I had in my mind these little girls that would come to my Sunday school class. They were, they were very little, and they would come, and they would sit quietly, and they would say these beautiful prayers over the snacks and crackers. And they would help me as my helper, and they would share their crayons. And, and I'm thinking, that's going to be my baby. That's going to be the next little Geesler is going to be like her sitting in Sunday school. Well, um, my daughter was nothing like that. People used the expression firecracker when they would speak of her. And she wasn't saying things like, oh, I love Jesus. She was saying things like, why does he get to boss me? Why do I have to listen to him? And, and I did not answer her like Ted Tripp. I, I was usually scratching my head thinking, how can you be so little and so hostile and be living in the same house with the rest of us? It, it was a mystery to me. Well, it's uh, going to bring us to our topic this morning, and that is we are going to be looking at the different things that contribute to the development of your child. If you did your homework, the author suggested this week we've got things in two different categories. And we want to talk about them this morning. We want to talk about shaping influences and Godward orientation of your child's heart. Now, we want to start with some definitions. The author is very quick to apologize for the terminology. Shaping influences, Godward orientation. You will not find those words in your Bible. He says if you do find them in your Bible, you need a new Bible. Okay? Um... The word's not there, but the concepts and the precepts are. So let's start. Let's start with a good definition. On your paper, number one, shaping influences are those events and circumstances in a child's developmental years that prove to be catalysts for making him the person that he is. 
They are the life circumstances that help define your child. And you had a number of passages that you were to read in your homework about the family that supported the concept of shaping influences in a child's life. Now, when it comes to shaping influences, there are typically two misconceptions concerning them. And I've got those on your paper as well. Number two, common errors that we make concerning shaping influence. The first is denial. And that's just to say that the child is unaffected by early childhood experience. The second is the opposite of that, and that's called determinism. And determinism assumes children are simply the product of shaping influences. Okay, in other words, that's the idea that you see your children as pretty much they're helpless victims to the circumstances that are going on around them. Now, the problem with this one is we Christianize it. We think, okay, if we can just isolate our children, if we can just uh, protect them, if we can just surround them with enough good thinking and wisdom and, and make the, give them a proper environment, then they will automatically grow up to be proper children making the right choices. And then what happens? That child grows up, he goes wayward, and what do you do? You blame the parent. The parent blames themselves because they're thinking, well, I didn't have all my ducks in a row. I didn't do everything right. Okay, that brings us to our next point, number three. The person your child becomes is the product of his life experience and how he responds to the shaping influences of his life. Shaping influences are important, but they are only part of the equation. And that's because your children are not just the fruit of what you're putting into them. Your children are responders. They're never neutral. They are not passive in what is going on in the shaping influences of their life. They are interacting with them. Brings us to our fourth point, number four. Your children are active responders to the shaping influences of their life. Now, we are going to talk about the active responders in a moment, but we want to start by talking about the shaping influences uh, in their life. And let me, let me explain something. Your book did not go into depth on the shaping influences. If you have the primary book, um, it does. It does spell those things out. And if you find yourself feeling too lost, then you may want to invest in getting the primary book. Uh, the handbook that we're going is kind of highlighting the, the main areas and has you spending most of your time looking up the scriptures. But the two um, do work together. Hopefully when you come here, We'll fill in the pieces if you're just using the handbook. Okay, but on your paper, I have a little box with the various different shaping influences. This list is not exhaustive, but let's go over a few of the primary ones. Number one, structure of family life. Okay, how is the family structured? Is it a two-parent home? Is it a one-parent home? Are the parents the natural parents of the children? Is life focused around one only child, or is it a big family with many children? What about birth order? Okay, these are all things that have to do with the structure of a family, and they can have an influence on your children. When I took my daughter to nursery, every week I heard some version of this. Oh, boy, we can sure tell she has two older brothers. Okay, they, they can impact the way um, a child acts. Number two. Family roles. 
What are the roles that each person is playing? Who does what? Is mom submitting to dad? Is dad the head of the home? Remember, your children are are observing you and they're learning how to parent by watching you. Number three, family conflict resolution. Family conflict resolution. How does the family resolve conflict? How do they work through their problems? In my family, I grew up where uh, our problems, things were confronted rather directly. They were hit head on. My husband's family was very different. They, they did not talk about things as directly as we did. My husband tells this story, and he's embarrassed about it, but he, he, he tells it and has allowed me to share it. But he uh, was in high school and got and bought some pot. He hid it in his room. His mother found it, and she took that, that pot, and she set it on his dresser, like right up on top. So he knew she knew. But they never said anything. It was never discussed. So he was always wondering, well, do they know? Are they going to bring it up? Am I in trouble? What's going to happen? He was very, it was all very unsettling, which he deserved. But it was un, un, unsettling nonetheless. Now, think about it when those two backgrounds come together and marry. Because I'm going around, hey, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. You know, and he's going, just set it on the dresser. Just set it on the dresser. You know? Okay, family, number four, moving on. Family response to failure. How does the family respond to failure? The failure of a child, when the child messes up, how does the family respond? Is the child mocked? Is the child belittled? Or is it an opportunity for the parent to build up and encourage and teach the child? Okay, Uh, family response to failure. Number five, family history. Family history, what's the family gone through? Have they moved a lot? Has they, have they experienced a death in the family? How about serious illness? How about struggles with finances? All of those things can have an impact on a child. All right, and number six, family values. What does the family value? Which gets a faster rise out of mom? When a child walks on a clean floor with dirty shoes or when the child says something unkind to a sibling. What about dad? Does he get more excited about a home run or respectful behavior? What does the family value? Let me tell you something about this one. I have observed many families, not many, but I've observed families over the year where they would say that God is the most important thing in their lives and then they spend every waking moment on the ball field. And they wonder when their kids get to be teenagers why they're so confused and have no passion. Years ago, I would help with the teenagers. I taught a Bible study. It was serious Bible study. We didn't sing. We didn't play games. We just came together for some Bible study and prayer. And um, the, it was a big youth group, but the Bible study time was very poorly attended. There were many nights it was just me and maybe two others. And I would um, see the kids on Sunday morning, and I would say, hey, are you coming tonight? And they would say, no, I have schoolwork. No, I have homework. Now, um, they didn't stay home Friday night to do homework. And they didn't stay home Saturday night to do homework. 
but they did stay home Sunday night to do homework. And what I have observed over the years is that for the most part, in the Christian, Christian community, homework almost always trumps Bible study. Homework trumps Bible study, prayer time, uh, things like that. Now you'll have, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I understand that sometimes there are certain circumstances, there are unique situations and occasions. I understand all that. I'm talking about a general mentality. Sometimes you'll see parents, where, sometimes you'll see families where sports trumps Bible study and prayer. Sometimes you'll see entertainment, pleasure trumping Bible study and prayer. But a very common one is your schoolwork, that education. Our lives very much center around that. Um, you have a young girl. She's sitting at the kitchen table. She's doing her devotions. Mom comes along and says, is your homework done? You see, what we do is sending a message to our children about what we value. Okay? And they have a shaping influence on our children. Okay. What is our attitude to be about the shaping influences that affect our children? You had a number of passages to read about the family, and they all presuppose the lifelong implications of early childhood experience. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Numbers chapter 33? Numbers 33. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 33, this is a passage of God giving the Israelites instruction as they are about to enter the promised land. Numbers 33, we're going to start at verse 52, 52, verse 52. It says, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. Okay, God had given the land, we'll stop there, had given the land to Israel, and they were to enter it. And they were to execute a holy judgment on those people. They were to push out the people and to destroy all the idols. Now, why do that? Why have them do that? That was a lot of work. Why not just let them stay? Let their idols stay, tax them, make them slaves. They were to remove them all because had they stayed, they would have had an influence on the children of Israel, on the people of Israel. That idolatry, had it stayed, would have had a shaping influence on the people. Now, look down at verse 55, same chapter. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Okay, in other words, there are going to be serious consequences for not dealing biblically with the shaping influences that are going to be in your lives. You're going to have trouble on down the road if you do not deal biblically with the shaping influences of your lives. You have things in your children's lives that you have control over. So, what should your attitudes be about those, attitu- about those influences in your child's life that you have control over? Number five, the shaping influences 
that we can control must be structured according to God's word. We want to be wise. We want to be obedient. As mothers, we are called to the shaping task of our children. And so we want to provide the most biblical shaping influences that we can. All right. What about the shaping influences that we can't control? What about those? When Grant was five, I sent him to this wonderful little Christian school. It was a little Baptist school. And in Pennsylvania, if you sent your child to a private school, the county still had to provide you with transportation. So I had, it was wonderful, I had this little minibus that would come and pick him up at my driveway every day and take him to school. Now on that bus was a sixth grade boy by the name of Michael Williams who began to pick on him. And going to school, Grant had never been to school before, the school, going to school, riding a bus was all new to him. It was all new to me as a parent. I, 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 I didn't know what I was doing. And he would come home every day. He was very distraught. He was very bothered. He was typically a very joyful, happy child, and I could see, I could see it taking its toll on him. There, uh, one of my girlfriends had a daughter that was on that bus and in the sixth grade class. So I asked her, you know, what, what's going on? Is he picking on Grant? And she said, oh, yeah, he's picking on him. So the two of us, Grant and I, would, we, would, we would talk, and we'd be like, you know, didn't know what to do. I said, do you want me to call the teacher? Do you want me to call his parents? Do you want me to talk to the bus driver? Do you want me to talk to the principal? And he was, no. He, those, that horrified him. He was too embarrassed. He just didn't want me doing anything like that. And so I'm scratching my head. I don't know what to do. And he didn't know what to do. And, and, then, and then one day I said, um, I don't know what to do, but this I know. This, this I do know. I do know that God's word says that we are to pray for our enemies. We are to pray for those that persecute us. We are to love our enemies. We are to pray that God bless our enemies. So we should pray to bless that God would bless Michael. And he was like, okay. He was, he was, he was desperate. We both were desperate. So the two of us sat down and we began to pray that God would bless Michael Williams. We prayed that he would have a good day. We prayed that he would not have a lot of homework. We prayed that he would get his homework done. <laughs> we prayed that he would have fun on the playground. We prayed that he would be good at home. We prayed that he would uh, uh, have lots of friends. Anything that my little five-year-old perceived as a blessing, as a benefit, as something good, we prayed for that little boy. And then we did it before bed, and then we got up and did it in the morning before he we went to school. Day one, he comes home. He gets off the bus. I meet him at the door. How'd it go? He said, he wasn't there. <laughs> and I said, well, we are praising God. You have, you've were delivered. You were delivered today. He kept, he kept you safe. And we went into my living room and we danced and we cheered and we, oh, and we prayed. And then we prayed for Michael Williams. And we prayed for him, and then we did it again before bed, and we did it again before he went to school the next morning, day two. Gets off the bus. I meet him at the door. How'd it go? He said, he was there, but he didn't come near me. Yay! Yay! 
we, we danced and we cheered and we praised God. And then we prayed, oh, dear Lord, will you just open up the heavens and pour every good thing on that little boy? We did it before bed, and then we did it again the next morning before he went to school. Day three, I meet him at the door. I say, how'd it go? He said he was there, and he is my friend. Oh, we praised, and we danced, and we learned, we learned, we learned that God's word is trustworthy. God's word is powerful. God's word is relevant. God's word is something your children can take to school. Never had another problem with Michael Williams. That's just the kindness of God. It's just the kindness of God. So, what do we do about the circumstances and influence, influences that affect your child that we cannot control? Very simply, we trust God. We trust God. We pray and we trust that God will use it for his good and glory. C.J. Mahaney and his wife were asked in an interview if they had any regrets about parenting, anything that they would do differently in looking back. And his wife answered this. She said, I wish I would have trusted God more. And I thought, oh, that's a good one. I agree. I look back, I wish I had trusted God more because most of the time I blew it far more than I ever got it right. But you see, those circumstances that your children face, that they can't control, maybe it's a difficult teacher or coach or an annoying neighbor or family member. Maybe it's a job loss or, or a serious illness. There are going to be opportunities for you as mothers to point them to God and to encourage them to trust God's goodness and his sovereignty in their lives. And you do that, by the way, and you will, you will get to the end with very few regrets. Next point, what is our attitude to be with shaping influences that we can't control? Next point, six, number six, you must teach your child to respond to to those things you cannot control with an understanding of God and his ways. The author put it this way. He said we want to shepherd his heart through all of life's hills and valleys into the paths of intimate communion and fellowship with God. All right, that's the shaping influences. But we said earlier that's only part of the equation because our children are responders. And let's talk about that. Our author referred to it as their Godward orientation. And I want to start by trying to define what that means. He didn't really give us a clear definition, so I'm going to try to put one together for us. Number seven, Godward orientation is the heart's response to God in the shaping influences of life. Now, let's turn with me to Proverbs 9. This is where the author starts as a way of understanding uh, what he means by that. Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, I'm going to start with verse 7. 
Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, now I want you to notice there are two different responses in this passage. You have the response of the wise man, and then you have the response of the scoffer. And some of your versions may use the word mocker. And then verse 10 helps us to understand it all. He says, the fear of the Lord. The one heart has the fear of the Lord. And it's the fear of the Lord that's making him wise. So that he's able to make uh, wise choices that he is using to respond to correction. All right, now your children are going to interpret the shaping influences of their lives based on that Godward orientation, what's going on in their hearts. Okay, now turn with me to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, and this is where we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time or the rest of our time. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, we want to stop there. The author is pointing out several things from this passage that we want to see. First of all, he explains that everyone is essentially worshipers, okay? And that goes for your children. That goes for our children. We have been created with a worship orientation. To be made in the image of God ensures that we have been born with a worship orientation. Now, remember what we've said. In previous weeks, we've said that we have been created to glorify God. We've been created to give God glory, to put the spotlight on God. We've been created to be dazzled by God. You shine the spotlight on God and you see the beauty of his character and his goodness. We are awed by that. We've been created to be awed by God. Okay, so everyone is essentially born religious, and the author puts it this way. He says, we're essentially filtering life through a religious grid. Now, let's make that our next point. Number eight, your children are designed for worship. They are instinctively and compulsively worshiping people. Verse 
after my parents were saved, we began going to a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. And that denomination is very, very centered and focused on missions. And so I grew up hearing missionaries that would come home and they would tell their missionary stories. And for some reason, the ones that came to our church, they all seemed to be coming from the the jungles of somewhere, very primitive, unreached people groups. And I began to notice a pattern. I noticed that when when, when the missionaries got there, they never had to explain to the people about worship. They had to explain who to worship, but they never had to teach the people the concept of worship because no matter where they were going, the people, when they got there, the people were already worshiping something, okay? And now why is that? Because we instinctively, we have been created for worship. It is innate, okay? As people created in the image of God, we have an inborn worship orientation, And that applies to your children. Now, according to this Roman passage, we've got two categories. There are two types of worship orientation. We either worship God, the one true God, or we worship idols. There's no neutral. You'll have an atheist who says, I don't believe in God. I don't worship God. But the truth is, he's worshiping something. Okay? Not neutral. Okay, your children, according to this passage, either respond to God by faith or they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Children are never neutral. Number nine on your paper. Your children never cease being worshipers. They will either worship God or idols. Worship God or idols. When my kids were little, if you would have told me that they were sinners, that they were born sinners, I would have agreed I understood that. If you would have told me they were idolaters, I would have, I might have thought, really? They're just little. How are they idolaters? Well, our author puts it this way. He says, your children are dazzled by God or they make the great exchange and worship created things rather than the creator. John Calvin famously said this. He said, the heart is a factory of idols, every one of us, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. Uh, So according to John Calvin, your children are not just born sinners. They have been born experts in inventing idols. They're born experts of idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? When we talk about idolatry, what what do we mean, particularly in children? Okay, an idol, as you know, is any created thing that we love and pursue more than God. It is anything within creation that is inflated to function as God. In the Bible, it is the most discussed problem and the most serious. And when you think about it, that makes sense because every sin that we commit involves idolatry. Every, every sin involves the decentering of God, where we're pushing God off to the side in order to pursue our sins, okay? So the author calls, when it comes to children, the author referred to what he called subtle idols of the heart, subtle idols of the heart, and that applies to parents as well. But I want to give you a definition for that. Number 10, subtle idols of the heart, any manner of motives, 
desire, wants, goals, hopes, and expectations that rule the heart of a child. Now, let me give you some examples of what uh, that could be. Not exhaustive, just a couple throw out there. Uh, Fear of man. The desire for power and influence. Pride. Performance. Possessions. Pleasure. Sensuality. The desire for approval. Okay. And the biggest one of all, self. All right. Now, what's, what th- these are subtle items of the heart. When you see any of those things ruling your child's heart or where your child is desiring that or yourself desiring that more than God, that's, uh, that, that's the subtle idols of the heart. All right, now I want us to look back at verse 21 because I want us to see something. Verse 21 of chapter one of Romans says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him or give thanks to him. Okay, let's stop there. It says they did not honor him. They did not glory him. They did not glorify him. They did not put the spotlight on him and give thanks to him. Now remember, that's what we've been created for. So they're turning from the very thing they have been created to do. They're not glorifying God. And instead, they turn. Now, I want you to watch the progress. Watch the progression of what happens. Verse 21 says, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, let's stop there. Remember what we said about the heart. We said it thinks. We said it believes. And now that they have turned from God, they're not glorifying God. They've turned from their true uh, purpose in life. They've turned. Now it's affecting what? It's affecting their thinking. It's It's affecting their belief. It's becoming darkened and futile. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Remember uh, what we've said about Godward orientation. We said there's either going to be uh, the fear of the Lord in their heart where they would be wise or they're going to turn from that and we're going to see foolishness, okay? Verse 23, it says, and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, right? Now it's affecting their appetites and their cravings and their desires. Right now, look what else the end of that verse. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, you see, their appetites had become impure. So now what's happening? Now it's affect, they're acting on it. It's affected their actions. Now, I put the progression on your paper there. It starts with the heart. It turns from God to idols. And then we're seeing that it affects the thinking. It affects the beliefs. That becomes darkened. That becomes futile, which then affects the appetites. Our appetites and our desires and our cravings, they become impure. And so then what happens? Then it begins to affect the way we act and the very things we do. So when you see your children or ourselves, for that matter, when when there is dishonoring behavior taking place, we've got a pretty good idea of the steps that it is taken to get there. Okay, the behavior is, is the fruit of impure appetites, which gets its start in impure wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, which gets its start from a heart that turns from God to idols. All right, 
I asked one of my sons this past week, I said, help me understand something. Help me understand how in your teens and 20s, you did not get caught up in porn. How, help me. What helped? And he said, well, for starters, I did not have access to it. He said it was very different back then than it is now. And so we both agreed, praise God, we could have had, been having a very different conversation if that had not been the case. We, we were very much aware of the grace of God in that. And he said, I didn't have access to it, and I had so many people around me that I respected, and they were telling me, don't do it, stay away from it, it's bad, it's not worth it. They were filling, they were filling his mind with that. Now, um, it, and it wasn't me, he was talking about teachers and youth group leaders and godly friends and godly friends' parents, and he said, I respected them, and what happened was it, it affected, he said, I, I respected them, and so I found that I wasn't, didn't have the desire to go out and seek it out. Okay, so you had friends and godly influences that he respected. They were, they were basically shepherding his heart. They were speaking to him. They were warning him. They were, they were addressing his mind. They were addressing his heart so that it then had an impact on what his appetites were, which then had an impact on what he did. Now, that's the case. He received that instruction as a wise man. He didn't receive it as a scoffer. So we, we, we have this combination of shaping influences, shepherding, and then that Godward orientation with how that heart received it. All right. Now, I want you to keep this progression in your mind because it's a wonderful outline for what we as moms want to do. Look at the top thing on your list. We want to honor God. All right, we want to glorify God. We want to put before our children a dazzling God. We want to invite them, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is the reason we dance in the living room. We want to address their minds. We want to warn them. We want to instruct them. We want to be dealing with their minds. We want to be dealing with their hearts. And then here's something we don't want to do. We don't want to be feeding their appetites, their fleshly appetites. We don't want to be feeding those sinful cravings and desires. And you know what? We get very good at that. So we have two big things we want to remember. We want to remember shaping influences. Seek to make those as biblical as possible. And then we want to be shepherding the hearts so that they're worshiping God and not worshiping idols. Now, is this a guarantee that your children will grow up in the faith? No. So why bother? We bother because we have been called to do it. And because he is worthy. This is really about you being obedient. And trusting God that he will bring about. And work in the life of your child. 
brings us to our closing comment. Number 11. Ultimately, your children are responsible for the way they interact with the parenting you provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is reliable and that it is trustworthy. We thank you that you are a God that dazzles. Help us to be women that put you front and center in the lives of our children. Help us to be mindful of the shaping things that we can be doing. Help us to be trusting you on those things that are out of our hands and out of our control. Oh, Father, we pray you do a mighty work for the children that are represented in this room by their moms. Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen.